3: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writer's Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Adi Oladipo, the journalist and broadcaster. It's been a long time coming, but European competition resumes on Wednesday. It will dominate airtime for the following 18 days. Manchester United kick us off with the formality of protecting a five-goal lead. Yet unique times pose a unique dilemma. Should they win the Europa League on August the twenty-first, there will be only three weeks to prepare for next season. Given all that, Miggs, how seriously should United take the competition?
0: I think fairly seriously, to be honest, because I mean we saw at the weekend the value of a manager winning their first trophy uh, with Arteta and Arsenal. Certainly, first trophy in England. Obviously, Solskjaer has won a few in Norway. But I suppose the major trophies that really matter at a club like Manchester United, I think it would be good to have a marker. And also, in relation to the break, the Premier League have, from what I understand, they've promised every club a break of at least, I think it's 31 days between their last match, be that in Europe or in England, and the start of the new season. So that means the new season will start 12th of September. But for clubs like Manchester United, Manchester City and Wolves, it could possibly be delayed a bit due to European participation. So with that in mind, I think they should take it seriously. It's a good opportunity. In fact, on the form of the last season, or sorry, the form of the last few weeks, I should say, and particularly what we've seen with Inter with the possibility that Antonio Conte could leave, you imagine that are probably the best team left in the competition. I think there's a real opportunity to get a trophy here.
3: Yeah, I think what we're looking at here, Eddie, is actually practical application of player protection, isn't it? Mm. You know, Frank Lampard was saying after the FA Cup final look you need to give my players a break because you know as we saw two hamstrings another injury for Pedro we're pushing these players to breaking point aren't we?
1: We are but players would always tell you that when they're on form they want to play and United right now are on a great run of form probably one of the best run of forms of most club teams in Europe since coming back from Project Restart. I'm like Miggs I do think that They should take it seriously. Um, It's a trophy. It's a trophy they won in 2017. It's a trophy that a lot of United fans don't really care about, if we have to be honest. They're a team that's used to competing in the Champions League and and playing for the Premier League. And I always feel like teams that have competed for those two big trophies don't necessarily uh, look at the Europa League as serious as maybe a Sevilla uh, would or, or an Inter Milan under Conte would. But it is a trophy nonetheless. I think it's an opportunity to put some players in the shop window Uh, There are some players at United that I think might not be there uh, at the start of next season. Players like Phil Jones and maybe a Jesse Lingard. So I think it's time to give those guys minutes on the pitch. And we know how much Bruno Fernandes likes this trophy as well. I mean, he's done extremely well for Sporting Lisbon in the Europa League before coming to United. So I think he would want to win it as well. So it is a chance to win the trophy. There are still some good teams in there. I think Roma are looking good as well. And let's not discount Wolves. I think Wolves could pose a good problem as well. But going back to the original point, I think players will still want to play when they're on form. I just think Schultz has got to be careful how he manages the minutes.
3: Yeah, and you know we can say the same thing about Wolves as well, can't we, Miggs? You know Their workload has been ridiculous, frankly, isn't it? This season started for them in terms of pre-season training on June the 27th last year. They've also had to deal with the speculation around... Raul Jimenez, you know, potentially going to Manchester United. Uh, Juventus have been mentioned in dispatches as well. Is that something that, because of the culture at that club, they just take in their stride?
0: Yeah, uh, I suppose so. I mean, and ultimately, when you have relationship with George Mendes like that, it's always going to be the case. You're always going to be a bit of a, a hub in that sense. Uh, even look at Manchester United and the relationship they've had with Mendes, where... He sold on probably the best player in their recent history, Cristiano Ronaldo. And, you know, came quite close to selling on their next best player in the last few years, uh, David De Gea, whatever about his current form. The one thing I suppose is, it almost feels as if Wolves have grown to a certain size now. that They're not just kind of... a they're not fully a feeder club in that sense. Got, they'd want fairly decent prices for a lot of these players. And and to be fair, there hasn't been that much move on yet. Where, whereas now you do wonder whether it feels that team could be, maybe not coming to a peak, but they they're, they're, they're arriving at a certain level together after a few years, whether we might start to see a bit more interest. It could be also why the end of the season was a little disappointing. I mean, in relation to the big question about... Uh, the Europa League. The one thing, of course, that does mitigate against that in their slog of a season was the fact we've had a massive three-month break in the middle. So it maybe meant that it mightn't have been as energy-sapping on the team as it would have been because it's all been so elongated. And, and now is where when they're going to feel it. But yeah, so, I mean, as in regards as, as regards to Jimenez, I remember hearing in early June that he was on Manchester United's list of potential targets, although quite a low priority compared to people like Jadon Sancho, obviously. But I, and I think this week, United have been quite adamant that they're not interested uh, in, a, in a current deal.
3: In a current yeah. deal. Yeah. <laughs> it gives them some wriggle room, yeah. doesn't it? You know, if you look at Manchester United's needs, Addy, um where do you think they should go and who do you think they should go for? You know, well, there is an awful lot of talk, obviously, about Jaden Sancho. And eventually, after the usual saga, I'm sure he will sign.
1: Yeah, I think um, look, Jaden Sancho is a player that can only enhance any team he goes to, especially United right now. I think uh, that forward line with Jaden Sancho including it is a fantastic, it's young, it's vibrant, it's energetic. But I, I look more backwards, if I'm honest with you. I, I think um, I like Lindelof and I think him and Maguire could form a good partnership in years to come, but I think Maguire needs someone a bit more a bit more physical next to him, Akulibali, for example. I know he's been linked with every single team in the world, it seems, apart from Liverpool. But I think Akulibali um, at centre-back could be a formidable partnership with Maguire. I I think they might need to look at the left-back side again. I I think Luke Shaw has had his up and down with injuries. He's out now for the season. Uh, They've got cover there, but I think a left-back as well. And obviously they've been linked with um, a a number nine as well. And I I think Jimenez does fit that bill. I I really do. At 29, I wonder how much United are going to pay for him, especially considering that Wolves paid, what, 30 million for him. Are United going to overpay that for a 29-year-old? I'm not sure. If he was 25, 26, I think he'd be there already. At 29, I just wonder maybe maybe um, he might be overpriced from what Wolves want in terms of um, a resale value. So, so we'll see.
3: Yeah. If the competition plays out as perhaps, let's be honest, we hope – uh, if Wolves progress against Olympiakos, runaway Greek champions, they're at one-one after the first leg. You sh- you think that Wolves should have enough there? Then they'll play either Roma or Sevilla, who've got this single-leg tighter to, to negotiate. Potential then a semi-final against Man United, uh, Migs, who who emerges from that one?
0: I think probably United, based on everything. I mean, these two clubs know very, each other very well over <laughs> the last they seem to be drawing it together and everything now United's form did dip in the, in the last few I think that with the, the break will do them well because Solskjaer has been such a kind of a his football is based on high energy really and when that energy starts to subside they look a very different team um, but you would think maybe this this little break would do them well and ultimately they've got more quality in their squad than Wolves so I do think United would, would go through
3: yeah and as you say though trophies change minds let's have a look at the FA Cup final fallout Adi, was this the day that Mikhail Arteta came as came of age as a manager?
1: I think he's come of age as a manager prior to this. I think the way in which he's dealt with the Ozil situation, uh, the Guendouzi situation, has already told me that this is a manager uh, that takes no nonsense. And I think he's already shown that he's had the tools already. Um, but in terms of winning a trophy, that's what you want, right? As a manager, you can do everything you want. If there's not trophies in the cabinet, you you almost get judged unfairly. Look at Pochettino as a good example. Um, it was an important trophy uh, for Arsenal, more so maybe than Chelsea. Chelsea fans may disagree with that, but I think Chelsea have already had uh, a decent season. I think finishing in the top four and getting to a final is a good season for Frank Lampard. For Arteta, it's almost a case of pointing that trophy towards the chairman and the board and saying, okay, look, this is what I can do Give me a bit more money and I can do a lot more. Um, obviously, there's so much fallout with Aubameyang after this and will he stay, will he go? But I think um, there's so much more he needs to do now. He needs to be ruthless, There's Arteta. We've seen it already, again, with the the Ozil situation. But I think there are a lot of players that um, maybe aren't good enough for Arsenal. And I think um, I expect a lot of chopping and, and swapping. Maybe not in one window, but in a couple of windows um, with Arsenal. But I think so far, so good for Arteta. In what has been a difficult start. It was a difficult start after coming in after Emery. But I think he's um I think he's by winning a trophy, what you do is you give yourself um room to to breathe from the Arsenal fans who we know like to be on their backs very quickly. And I think Arteta's given himself a lot of breathing room here.
3: You were there, Miggs. It struck me as a as a TV viewer, probably the weirdest match I've ever, I can ever remember. Watching simply because you know we we get used to w- watching football in a vacuum, but because of the traditions and the mystique of the occasion and everything else around it, it just was plain weird. What was it like being there?
0: Well, yeah, that's the thing. Um Like I think we've all very got, very much got used to behind closed doors football in that way and everything that comes with it, but precisely because of what you said, because of the very long-established customs of the FA Cup final. It really hit home again all the more, kind of re, really re-emphasised it. Almost everything to do with today, right from when I got up, I was kind of feeling it, to be honest. And, and even actually in, in the preview, given to be just so... Like we had an interview with Mason Mount on the Thursday or Wednesday. You know, he was talking about how usually well, at this point you'd be trying to sort tickets or... You know, and even little things like that for players' families. And then when you get into the ground, I mean it just it just was so different because it's almost this sense the the way it's being talked of around him, you know this is kind of a big game, but then it's just so subdued within the stadium and particularly when it's a stadium which is the biggest in the country now in in wembley um and then it really hits home and you have got the kind of the odd side of a like a a bite at me which was is, is one of the um Cup finals more touching um routines or customs, and then you have the kind of the odd side of emil emil sands. <laughs> on the roof, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think with anything though, and I found this right through lockdown. Uh, lockdown, once the game is involving enough, you still kind of forget everything about it, and that that almost happens uh, on Saturday. To a degree, because I think it, I mean, I think it was an entertaining final. A lot of Chelsea fans, my questions some of the decisions in it, but I, I think I think it was an entertaining enough game and a really involving game. I, I was actually, I was right in line. My my pressy was right in line where they pick where Arsenal pick up the trophy on Saturday. I almost missed that. I basically got to just look up in, in time because you know usually obviously there'd be the big cue for it to happen. You'd you'd know well. Whereas it it, it all just felt a bit um, didn't have quite the same energy around it.
3: Yeah, what what I found really really strange was the sort of background noise of the, of that hysterical announcer there. That yeah, was yeah. So yeah. Out, of, out of tune, wasn't it?
0: Well, that, that's it, and, I, and I'm I'm so, I'm so used to his voice, basically, kind of whipping up a packed Wembley crowd, whereas here it was to you know
3: a few journalists and employees. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But I suppose that game did give us an indication also of how football itself is changing, Addy. I'm thinking particularly of managerial or coaching influence in the drinks break, tactics break, whatever you want to call it. The dynamics of the game are changing, aren't they? Because Arteta basically, because that first half was the was the cliché, wasn't it, a half, two halves, he actually got hold of his team midway through this, that half because of the break and changed the momentum of the game. Is that actually now almost given us a glimpse into the future of the game, where basically it will become almost much more coaching orientated.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and look, that's not supposed to happen as well. Let's be clear. The Premier League have said it literally is a drinks break. It now is, as you say, a game of four halves where managers like Pep and Mikel Arteta are using it as quickly. Let's it's give as much more team information as possible in this little three minute break. Um, that's the way it's going. That's the way it's going. And I think sometimes you need to use that to your advantage. If you see things are not planning out the, the first quarter of the game, then then switch it up. Um, I don't know how the Premier League are going to enforce managers not to do it, um, but that seems to be how it's going. And I think Mick Arteta seems to be a genius at doing it. Um, every time I've seen them, uh, Arsenal have a sluggish first quarter. He gets them, gathers them in. He's very, with his arms, he's out there really kind of, uh, gesturing what they should be doing. And Arsenal seem to come out a stronger team in the second quarter of games. And I think that's down to almost the influence that he's seen from Pep, who who was the first manager I saw do it. And now Mikel Arteta is almost taking it and taking it to another level. Going back, I don't know how the Premier League are going to enforce that. He doesn't do that. And I can just see everyone doing it now, just because, again, you you are going to need to take every advantage you can.
3: What's your impression of Arteta, Megs? You know, he, he has impressed I think the key probably is the discipline he's instilled and the force of his example with with Ozil and Guendouzi. You know, in your dealings with him, how have you found him and is there more to come from him?
0: Yeah, I like him a lot. Uh, I think he's very striking, very sharp, uh, speaks with conviction. Uh, Obviously, the most important thing to that is that the way he speaks comes from a proper idea of football that he can communicate. I think that's very much the case. I mean, obviously, you know, there's been so much talk about him being a mentor, at Guardiola. His his base idea of football is obviously the same. Yet, what I've been particularly impressed with in Arteta's first season is how well he's adapted that and kind of. And this is particularly the case in, the, in both the semi-final and the final, where he's really kind of, I don't want to say compromised, but really, really kind of nuanced his fundamental approach to specifically suit these two games and ultimately do a number on um, on both Guardiola and then Lampard. And, like, uh, this is one I've been thinking about a lot, particularly in, in the build-up to the cup final. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know how popular it would be, uh, maybe with some members of our press, but if I'm, a, say, a club owner or whatever, I'd rather have Arteta in charge of my team right now than Lampard. By, by, by quite, by, by quite By quite a distance.
3: Okay, so that's the loving cancelled, then. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I suppose to your point earlier, Addy about you know the need to be ruthless. You know, you you, you can apply. and I'm sure we'll talk about it in, in a couple of minutes about Chelsea. But do you think Aubameyang will get done now? If for one, and where is that ruthlessness going to manifest itself? Maybe in goal? You know, Martinez has been terrific. Mm. And do you think he'll stay in goal?
1: You'd like to think it's the person that's got the gloves, that keeps the gloves if they're doing well. Um, I think Martinez is a a fantastic goalkeeper. I think Leno is as well. I I think they're almost tier two keepers. If you think of your tier one keepers as Allison and Edison, I think Martinez and Leno are are in that second tier. And I don't think Leno's that much better than Martinez, whereby you could drop Martinez now. With regards to Aubameyang... It all comes down to what Abamyang wants. Is this a guy that just wants 250000 a week over three years, which is kind of what we're led to believe he wants? Or is it a guy that wants to stay and build and grow with Arsenal in this new thing that Arteta's is trying to do? Um, if, if it's the latter, then it shouldn't be a problem to keep Abamyang. If it's the first issue, then are Arsenal going to give him a three-year deal for that kind of money? I, I think he's worth every penny of it. I, I don't think... It's easiest now to find a striker that will guarantee you 25 goals a season. Yang does that. I think it's other places they need to be a bit more ruthless in. Um, Players like Bellerin, who had actually a decent cup game. But, I mean, Bellerin has been blighted by injuries. He always had his pace to get him out of trouble. The pace is gone now. Does he need to go? Does Callum Chambers need to go? Does Mustafi need to go? There's so many players they need to look at. But I think that the biggest problem right now is obviously keeping Aubameyang. And let's see if they can keep him because I know people will be sniffing for that Aubameyang signature just because, again, he guarantees you 25 goals a season.
3: Yeah, and recruitment is obviously the name of, of the game in modern football, isn't it, Migs? Um, I thought there was something tiresomely predictable about Arsenal being linked with Coutinho. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> We've obviously got the, the obvious link to Keir Jarabchan you know, the advisor. But do Arsenal need a player of that type? And by that, I mean, you know, someone coming back on the, on the bounce from a bad move to Barcelona. <laughs> um, circumstances like that can actually suit. So, I mean, it was always the classic
0: cloth move, wasn't it, I suppose? Basically, getting a player who's been down or kind of now suddenly a bit disregarded and banking on the kind of talent that's there. I think sometimes I feel in these kind of cases, you have to almost separate the player from... The situation, the situation is, as you say, is complicated by um, drabchin's relationship with Arsenal. Uh, but I think, uh, given that Arteta is adamant about getting rid of Ozil, I think they do need that creativity. I think they have struggled a little bit in some games where they have kind of played the approach that they would want—a very kind of you know proactive, full-on game against lesser opposition often, often—and they haven't been able to catch them out. I mean, what, I suppose what works with Aubameyang, particularly in games like this. Is that um, or games like the weekend? Is that uh, they, there's a lot of space running behind because the opposition are coming at you, whereas that hasn't been the case with a lot of games against the bottom half. I think it's in games like the, that that Arsenal could do with uh, a, a number ten. Uh, we had a story on this on Friday, and we've been told that basically Coutinho has been offered to Arsenal, basically for Guedes and a kind of a, no, a nominal 10 million fee. Oh wow!
3: Do you think that'll get done? from what I heard
0: Arsenal weighing up a lot at the moment they've got another, I think there's another offer for, for Guendouzi from Juventus and I suppose I mean the other thing about Saturday is it does transform their finances because being in Europe was so important to them uh, and I heard one story about one of the uh, more influential officials at the club texting someone else basically just saying phew uh, because of just how much cha- <laughs> how, how much ju- how much how much just changes their, their recruitment possibilities um, so, they've got a lot of options to look at it. So, I don't, I maybe wouldn't be certain about Coutinho yet because I think they've got a fair bit to look at. And I suppose, even beyond that, what they'd rather do rather than Coutinho right now is uh, secure Ceballos. Yeah,
3: yeah. He has, there is a, a he's very simpatico with um, Arteta, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Ceballos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's look, look, look at Chelsea if we could, Addy. This is time, probably, when you look at Frank Lampard. He has got a great media profile. I've always found him to be very engaging and very intelligent uh, in his analysis. But you don't have the playing career that he had and the influence that he wielded in that Chelsea dressing room without being ruthless. Who do you think will leave Chelsea because of that ruthlessness?
1: Oh, um, I think we can start with both left backs or should I call Alonso a left wing back? seems to be a luxury player that they can only carry if they play free at, free at centre-back or free at the back. Um, so I, I think he's going to go. Kepa's an interesting one. Um, let's not forget this is the most expensive goalkeeper in the world. And um, if Chelsea wants to try and get any money they can back for him, he's got to play. He's got to play. He's almost got to be in a shop window. Right now, he's not in a shop window. Who's going to buy him? Jorginho is a defensive midfielder. Just isn't working. Um, it looks like he will be on the chopping board as well. And then there are interesting players like... Ross Barkley, uh, what, what do you do with Ruben Loftus-Cheek? Chelsea have bought so much going forward, or have so much going forward now, you kind of wonder where are all these guys going to play? Is Hudson-Odoi going to play? Uh, this is a guy that Chelsea were desperate to keep uh, two seasons ago. Now it looks like he might be surplus to requirements as well. Um, but I do think Alonso and Emerson both could go if Chelsea can get in a left-back. I think there's good resale value in Emerson. I think Um, He could go anywhere, Emerson. I think he's that good. Uh, Alonso just doesn't have the pace, unfortunately, for the system that Chelsea play. Um, But I think Jorginho could be the one that's on the chopping block. And then you have to look at centre-backs as well. I mean, are Zuma, uh, as we saw on Saturday, not good enough? Is Tomori good enough? Is Rudiger, Christensen? All decent-level centre-backs. But when you're Chelsea and you're used to having the likes of John Terry or Corvalio or even Gary Cahill, um, these centre-backs don't compare to that. So a lot of chopping... I feel like Jorginho could be the one who gets chopped first.
3: Mm. What do you think, Migs, about uh, Chelsea's recruitment strategy? You know, I'd sort of term it almost as a shiny toy strategy. Let's go and get the flash front man Um, when probably they they have needs further back. Are they doing it the right way? You know, there's obviously a lot of money there. And, 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 you know, Mr. Abramovich is obviously going to fund whatever he wants, really.
0: Uh, in the short term, and given Lampard's needs, you would have questions. If you zoom out, though, I think they're being very smart because I think they've realised they've hit on a few advantages here. First of all, it's a very, very def- suppressed transfer market where few clubs have money to do business. Um, and there are a lot of clubs that actually need money. So not, not only does Chelsea have money, but they've got even more money because they couldn't spend a year ago and didn't spend in January. So suddenly, and in in a case like this, it means basically that 60 million in this market is worth a lot more than 60 million a year ago. Uh, and I, I think and it's a little—it's almost a little bit like the housing market moment. If you've got money and can spend, there are a lot of, there are a lot of great deals to be done. And I think that's the way they're approaching things. And they're getting ahead of the market and kind of trying to sign the best kind of players from early to mid twenties out there, uh, like Kai Havertz, like Timo Werner. Uh, So I think for a medium to long-term strategy that is very intelligent, they're they're getting ahead of the game and really kind of bolstering what is, I mean with some of these players and even some of the names we're talking about and just how stacked they make the Chelsea attack, uh, it's one of the best, the depth of that forward line is something else. Of course then there's questions at at the back but this could still work out for them because say even if they spend most of their existing budget on attackers like this of this star quality, but then, say, they sell on three players like Ross Barkley, like Jorginho. And I think they will get a fair bit of money for Jorginho because of the fact that Sarri would want him at Juve. Uh, Kepp is a different situation. I think, uh, as regards to what Ade mentioned there, I think that could be a classic case of Chelsea um, sending him out on loan somewhere for a year, basically to increase his value. Because they, they're they a club that never, never sells, uh, you know, when a price is as low as it can be. They'll, they'll try and amp it up. So I, I imagine that could happen with Kepa if they get in a replacement. But say if they do sell two or three players like that, then they can put that towards the transfer budget as well. And that could be where you see them kind of augment the defensive side. They, they do like Declan Rice a lot. And, and, and again, what sums up this situation, uh, from what I've heard, West Ham's stance on Declan Rice was previously not for sale at all. Whereas now, because of how circumstances dictated things that has shifted slightly to where it's where they're saying if we get the right price, they'll they'll consider doing business and um, Chelsea might be able to offer that price.
3: Yeah, what what do you think they should do uh, about the goalkeeping option? If we, you know, I I tend to think that that Miggs was right there. I think they will send him out on loan, probably back to Spain. They've been linked, Eddie, uh, with uh, Andre Onana from Ajax. Yeah. Uh, £30 million, which, you know, loose change these days, I suppose, aren't, isn't
1: it? Is that their best option? Um, it's one of their best options. I, I think, I don't think Sheffield United or United will be happy to hear this, but I think Dean Henderson is a good option. Uh, it's proven, right? I mean, sometimes when you're signing goalkeepers from different countries, it, it is very risky. Uh, when you've got a proven Premier League goalkeeper here in Dean Henderson, um, I, I'm not quite sure if United will deal with, uh with Chelsea or if Sheffield United will try and hold on to him for another season but I think this is I think England's number one really I, I think he, he's kind of ups uh Pickford now so I think he could be the best option Andre Nana is good I've watched him a lot for IX, and he's a fantastic goalkeeper almost that new mold of goalkeepers that are really comfortable with their feet as well but I, I think Dean Henderson's probably the standout one um for me, it's just whether or not United are, are going to deal with Chelsea. And if they do, knowing that Chelsea have these deep pockets now that they've that they have been fortunate to have, I think um, the price will be ridiculously inflated. So Anana for thirty million could be a lot cheaper than Dean Henderson right now.
3: Okay. Before we just move on from the FA Cup final, I think we've got to you know highlight some of the sort of controversial aspects of that game, um, specifically the the sending off of uh, Kovacic. It did pump the impure thought, Megs. Has the standard of refereeing ever been lower? Um, <laughs>
0: what I would say is, I mean, there's, there's probably no absolute, or there's very few absolute standout referees across Europe. But I do wonder how influenced that perception is by the fact that we just scrutinise refereeing to a greater degree than we ever do before. I mean, literally every single thing they do, and, and, and I, this is true in the most literal sense now, is analyzed to the smallest possible degree right down to millimeters um so with that i'm I'm not sure any referee can look good in that situation uh, I think we'll always see what we think huge flaws i mean if you if you look at it even ten years ago well maybe not because it's going to grow the technology but, but but even if you go with the i think the way these perceptions come out because of you know traditional images we have of refs but ultimately from, for the most part. They'd make the decision. There'd be two or three le- replays, which are fairly inconclusive, and we all got about our bi- went about our business. What With with the odd incident, obviously uh, maintaining controversy for years afterwards. But I, I think rather than refereeing being worse now, just the way we can scrut- scrutinise ref- referees is just is, is much worse in itself, or really, it can be much more intense.
3: Yeah, uh, the criticism has been pretty virulent. Um... And I suppose understandable in that sense. Let's go on to uh, the championship playoff uh, on Tuesday night, uh, the, the final. Addy, the Brentford model, do you think that would be viable at the highest level or are its defining characteristics, you know, great recruitment, innovative analysis, transferable to whatever level you want?
1: Heart says yes, head says no. Um, I would love it to be um, successful in the Premier League. And, and I guess it can be. I, I, we've probably seen it with, with Arsene Wenger in his early years at Arsenal, signing these players from some obscure locations and players that have almost been chucked onto the scrap heap and he's then made, made them into superstars. I, I love what they're doing at Brentford. It's more looking at statistics than actually looking physically at the player. Um, and you do hope it can um, work in the Premier League. I just feel like, these are these are players that the Premier League are aware of. Premier League scouts are aware of these players. And, and I feel like Brentford could be giving them a heads up about these players and Premier League scouts could be going right under their noses and, and picking them and just offering a bit more money. That's my only concern for him. Um, but I like what he's doing there. I like this, um, this money ball type uh, way of finding players. I just don't know if it's going to be uh, successful in the Premier League just because, again, Premier League teams have so many scouts all over the world looking for such players
3: yeah I suppose given the finances of everything Migs you know will they be able to keep their best players even if they go up
0: well we what well, we think they'll probably lose one or two maybe that front line we'd say now the one thing you would think just by virtue of the fact they go up whether you know the you know Frank might be able to convince the players to give this give this at least a season you're going to be in the shop, but you'll get your move eventually regarded I think there'll be very good management on Frank's Part if he does, but that is suddenly the bind that well-run, less financially powered clubs like Brentford find them in, and it's one of the kind of more depressing aspects of modern football in that good teams like that they barely even have a year together at this point before they're certainly be picked off with no power, and you have to almost appeal to emotional arguments to try and keep players.
3: Yeah, you you know you were at uh, Griffin Park, weren't you, Migs? For that, yeah. Um, a game uh, against Swansea, I thought it was a fantastic game of football. Give me some idea of how you think a team like Brentford will get on. Uh, you know, I actually probably would look at them and think they could do a better job than, say, West Brom, who are, who are obviously guaranteed a place already. To be honest, it was actually the best football match I've been to this year, I'd say.
0: <laughs> Maybe bar Dor- Dortmund PSG in the Champions League or something like that. Uh, but it was it was really entertaining. Rather than West Brom, I'd almost look at them in a bit of a a Norwich situation, almost where I think, maybe a bit better than Norwich, but but I think they'd come up, I think they'd get some really big eye catching wins with the way they play, but their commitment to that could also see them caught out more more often than not, just due to kind of the the quality gap. I think they'd offer, in terms of what they do, and sorry to West Brom fans here, but I think they'd offer more to the Premier League than West Brom. Just just something more mm. there's something more distinctive about them.
3: Yeah. You know, let's let's not forget there are two teams in this final. Um <laughs> Fulham, Addy, are they a, a nearly team, do you think? And, and what about Scott Parker? He's building his managerial career without
1: fanfare, but have you been impressed? Absolutely impressed. Um this is a guy that took charge of them what March last year. Uh, they went down. Um he he got given the job full-time basis in May 2019. So he's been in charge for just over a year full-time now. And I think he's ticked every box. Um, He's kept the players that I think he would have wanted to keep, uh, apart from uh, Sessignon, obviously, that moved on to Spurs. Um, But I feel like they're a team that are so heavily reliant on Mitrovic. Um, If he doesn't score, I I kind of wonder who will. I think what Mitrovic has got, 26 goals this season. The next best is Tom Kenny on eight. And that's a massive drop-off for Fulham. But I think... um, He's now got the players doing the playing almost the way he wants them to play. Um, my only fear for them is that I've always see, I've already seen this movie of Fulham going up. We've seen Fulham in the Premier League already. We know how it plays out. Craven Cottage will be loud and boisterous, and they'll win some big games. But we kind of know exactly what they're going to do. Brentford almost offer this. I've absolutely no idea what to expect, and that's the kind of the romanticism of seeing Brentford in, in the Premier League as opposed to Fulham, who have kept the nucleus of the players that went down and they're going to go up again. And I, I've already seen those players in the Premier League. So I think um, Scott Park has done a fantastic job in getting to the position where they finished fourth. But I, I do think um, that's it. I, I think Brentford will win the final. And without trying to be too biased, so I, I actually would prefer to see Brentford in the Premier League.
3: Mm.
0: What about you, mix All things being equal, I think Brentford would go up but having been at that game on Wednesday, I actually became a little bit concerned for them as I kind of sat in the stadium with the scenes of celebration, because there was that little sense that 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 Wednesday night, the last game of Griffin Park, was the big night, and that there was a bit too much celebrating afterwards. And you, you and you would wonder. I was actually I was talking about this with Johnny Liu after the game, who made the point to like, given how they ended the season. Well, and like we had those three massive defeats, basically the two at the end of the league campaign, and then the and one in the first leg um, away to Swansea. Was this big night at Griffin Park and everything it meant? Was that their one big last push? And could they be a little bit spent for for Tuesday? Uh, I think that that that's a fair enough question. And, and like some of it did remind of the way Derby and Lampard went on after knocking out Leeds last last season, uh, and I think that's a little bit of a danger, but. Yeah, I think we're all, we're all impressed with Thomas Frank by now. Um, he, to be fair to him, was very good on this in his press conference immediately after. Him. He said, "Right, we can celebrate tonight, but tomorrow we work." Uh, so he was <laughs> he, he he was he was he was keen to assert that I think to everyone at the club. And if he can get that right, uh, and they have that that one last push, I think they're a better team than Fulham. To be honest, I think he's a better manager than Parker, or as you know, he's more experienced manager as well. I think Brentford will go up, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's not as. Um, I think there could be a bit more, bit of a wild card to this as well.
3: Relegation, um, you know, one of the obvious consequences usually are, are managerial changes. Uh, Bournemouth now looking for a manager as are Watford. You're in charge at Bournemouth, Addy. Who would you appoint?
1: Chris Hughton. Right now, I, I would actually run to his house and give him the contract for him to sign immediately. <laughs> this is a guy that's. Um, proven, and I'm still shocked that he's out of out of work at the moment. I know there were, there were links with Bristol City. Uh, that could be a good job for him, but I think um, Bournemouth just seats him to a T. Um, he would be able to keep a lot of those players and, and I think we, we've seen him get clubs out of the Championship before. He knows how to do it. Fantastic manager. Um, unlucky, I think, to be sacked by Brighton or moved on by Brighton. Unlucky to be sacked by Newcastle. So I think this is a manager that wants to prove something as well. And I think the chairman at Bournemouth will give him time to prove something. I think this is a manager that wants to be at a club for four or five seasons and build something. Um, and it's going to take a long time to kind of get over the Eddie Hell uh, situation. But I think Chris Hutton, with that experience, can definitely get them back up. I think John Terry is an interesting one as well. He's been linked. I think we've seen the job that he's he's done uh, with Dean Smith at Aston Villa. Could be a good job for him at Bournemouth. But I think Chris Hutton has to be the favourite. It really does.
3: Mm, yeah, I must admit, I'll be very tempted to have a look at Paul Cook. I think yeah. he's done brilliantly, mm. you know. Watford, migs they were almost becoming cliché club in many ways. They're now linked with Udinese's caretaker manager, <laughs> Luke, Luca Gotti, who sounds like something out of The Godfather, <laughs> doesn't it? But, um, you know, a Watford just inherently wedded to their business plan and, you know, they just get another light bulb in to be manager for six months.
0: Well, you'd wonder now, because that business plan, it worked for a time in the Premier League in which, you know, they took the decision that no one else would. Anytime, you know, a- anytime uh manager was basically starting to flay a little bit, they just get rid. They wouldn't take the chance. And just, and it was almost like a, per- a perpetuation of new manager bounces. It seemed for a while they'd gamed the system. Ultimately, given they went down after, what was it? four seasons, which is actually the average that any club coming up stays in the Premier League. It's, it's actually quite remarkable. It's amazing how they conform to that. And it shows, I don't think you can, you can really game the Premier League in that sense, because ultimately the game in the Premier League is you have to have a certain amount of revenue or else you'll eventually go back down because there's, there's no way to mitigate against that. That's, that's what it's becoming as a division. And now it might have, it might cause a reassessment for Watford because I'm not sure that can work as well in the championship. Now they're back down to get back up. Because it feels like the championship is going through what has now been quite a medium-term transformation and where really more of the clubs are like um, are like Brentford or like Swansea, where there's something progressive about them, something different, mm. uh, where, 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 say, even four or five years ago, Bournemouth are really kind of, you know, just at the vanguard of that. And now the the what the Watford model just seems too chaotic in comparison to clubs like that. And and, and, I, and I, it comes back to the manager. So and and this is actually why I, I, I disagree, I have to say, with Ade on Bournemouth signing Uton. Because I think Uton's just I think his, his approach just doesn't fit with how Bournemouth wanted to play. And I I that's one thing that I'd question with Watford as well. With most clubs where the idea of a head coach is somewhat dispensable. It's always because the head coach ultimately fits a certain profile. That's what Swansea actually did very well for so many years. And West Brom did well for so many years. And one of the problems with Watford was they didn't really have a profile for head coach. They basically just... I mean, every single manager they went to was so different to the last one. And eventually that, that cost them because we just kind of this, this chaos of uh, you know, a whole load of different identities within the playing squad and you know, with how the manager used them. And I think it's, it's now time they set on what they want to be as a football club, as opposed to just being a Premier League club who take fairly drastic decisions. Because now, neither of those might be kind of true.
3: Yeah, well, if we're talking about chaos, it's quite a nice link into Newcastle, isn't it? Oh, jeez. Saudi takeover collapsed. Uh, What are the lessons to be drawn from
1: that? Um, We don't know, because we don't know why it's collapsed. That's that's the honest answer, right? Uh, The Premier League... Uh, have taken or took, sorry, uh, 17 weeks to reach a decision. They haven't reached one. And uh, the Celtics have said, OK, w- you know, we'll take our money back. Um, it would have been good to um, have got a statement from the Premier League as to why it's taken so long. I think we on the outside uh, probably know why, but it would be good for them to kind of release it and say, OK, is it because of human rights? Is it because of privacy? W- what's the reason? Um, for, for Newcastle fans, um, it just the saga just gets worse and worse. I mean, last season, it was a, a Dubai consortium that was supposed to take him over. Didn't happen. Uh, they think that Mike Ashley doesn't spend money. They want him out. And they thought they were going to be the richest club in the world. Uh, and all of a sudden, um, everything's come come tumbling down. Um, I, I still think it would be good to know why the decision has taken so long. I think the Premier League do need to release a statement because 17 weeks is is ridiculous. But in the end, if it's the right decision then um, well done to the Premier League. I just think that there needs to be some sort of transparency here. We we do need to know why um, it's taken 17 weeks for um, a consortium that was, by all intents and purposes, going to pump money into Newcastle, the area, not just the football club, and make it almost like what Man City have done. Uh, why have they rejected that when um, we do know that Saudi investment is living and breathing in the Premier League already? We saw Anthony Joshua go to Saudi Arabia and have a fight in Sky Sports, so... I mean, they're allowing these events, so it would be nice to know why the Premier League have uh, basically taken so long to to let this one cross over the line.
3: The Saudis, they got their PR right, if nothing else, that some of the stuff just basically left me open-mouthed that they came out with, you know, weep, weeping uh, principles involved. Um, <laughs> you've been pretty uh, strong on this, uh, Migs. Your view on it in terms of, you know, football's wider significance and social significance, I suspect you think it's a good thing that that Saudi takeover collapsed.
0: Uh, it won't feel like this to fans, to Newcastle fans, but I think this is the best thing that's ever happened in the history of the club. Because if that club was taken over by this Saudi Arabian state to be used as a sports-washing project, now, Amanda Stavely of course denied is going to be a, sport, a sports-washing project and one of the least convincing interviews I've ever seen given. I'm amazed she wasn't challenged on that, to be honest. But if that if that happens, then it makes Newcastle a hollow political vessel. It distorts what the club is. It's not Newcastle United, the football club anymore. Now, of course, there are fair, similar there, there are fair questions about what they are now under Ashley. Uh, this is by no means to. I mean, I think Ashley. My, my, my personal view was it would be great if someone else owned Newcastle. Just that someone else shouldn't be the Saudis. I think they'd be worse owners. I mean, it, it just comes back to really the fundamental idea of what club football clubs are, which is our social institutions, community assets, what you want to call them. But their ultimate goal is a representation of a community. That, to be a political vessel for a state like Saudi Arabia, runs contrary to that, because that becomes its primary objective. And ultimately, it makes the club, because of what it, what it would seek to do, which is sports washing, it would make the club complicit in a lot of very, very problematic issues. And that is far more important an issue than success. Uh, and if they did achieve success in the, in this situation, if they were, were taken over, it would have just felt, felt hollow. It would have felt empty. It wouldn't have been truly Newcastle United's success in that sense, in, in the sense that we know a great club. From that moral perspective and what the soul of Newcastle United is, I think it's a very, very good thing this takeover has been rejected. I feel very, very strongly about that. I, I think it's one of the great disgraces of English football that clubs aren't ring-fenced as community assets. I mean, you know, we've seen the accumulative problems of this for years, right down to the fact that, that Ashley is curring, currently running Newcastle as, as it is. But, you know, two wrongs wouldn't have made a right in this situation. Uh, and even some of Stavely's comments were, were absolutely laughable. Uh, some of the stuff she got, I, I, I couldn't believe. And then the way she's going on about how, well, they, you know, they would have tried to buy Man United. So There's it been long-term Saudi interest in Manchester, and they, like, they have investigated the possibility of buying the club. The Glazer price w- w- was, was so high. But then in relation to all this stuff she goes on about investing in the area, like, there's nothing stopping them doing that now. But, but, but it, I, it, this, I, I remember very early on in the process talking to people and t- talking to kind of... Um, 'Cause we, we obviously did a fair few pieces on the significance of this from kind of a geopolitical perspective and um and human rights perspective. And talking to Saudi dissidents who've been forced out of the out of the country, basically. Um and they, they 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 were saying that they always had doubts that this this would never be if it, if the takeover did come happen, it would never be as slick as what's happened with Abu Dhabi and Manchester City. Um and I think one of the ways you're going to see that in one of the plans. I mean, they they, they talk about this regeneration of an air, of an area. Well, first of all, with, with Manchester City, there's already a lot of questions over wh- how that regeneration stops at basically the the uh, the gates of the Etihad complex. It's not like they've it's not like they've built loads of affordable housing up in Manchester in that way. You know, um, instead, the club has been basically the platform to build a fairly lucrative and fairly high end construction empire in 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 the city that's why i'd always be skeptical of these claims of regeneration and sec- but just related to that as well in in one of the plans they put forward 250 million for player purchases now even in this market and even with newcastle and even what they what they even if that was a first step that's a very low amount of money for a project that's coming in making grand claims about regeneration and there's, there's so many questions to be asked at this whole thing and the question should really be going to this consortium that have really done an, a real job of emotional manipulation of a lot of so many Newcastle fans, and it's it's almost I think that that's what's really insidious about this. To be honest, they've they've really played on the understandable desperation of Newcastle fans to get rid of Ashley because of, you know the essentially the existential crisis that Newcastle fans have gone through over over the past uh, thirteen years, and I think there's, there's there's so many things about this that leave me with just leave with a bad taste. And the way they try to play this, uh,
3: the way Stately spoke on, it's really great on me, to be honest. <laughs> really? <laughs> I suppose it's modern football, isn't it? That's what we're talking about here, uh, with all its attendant uh, ills and excesses and, and moral challenges. You know, I think we, we need to be clear on that. So bring this all together now, uh, Addy. Um, this is your... um first appearance, um, we we come out with something called Thought for the Day, um, which basically, any subject that you'd like to uh, address, feel free.
1: Um, I feel like this is such a good lead on from uh, what Miguel was saying there with regards to sort of finances at clubs. So my, my thought for the day, is it takeover or bust? Uh, and what I mean by that is watching football now, I won't give away my age, but there was a time when I, your local chairman could be the, the local managing director of a business on your doorstep. Now it seems if you don't have a billionaire owner, you're so far behind, it's almost nigh impossible to catch up. There are some fairy tales, uh, Leicester being one of them, um, in a the way in which they recruited and, and became champions, and maybe to an extent Liverpool as well. But um, it feels like now that if your club isn't taken over, uh, the chances of you catching a, a United or a city now have had so much investment and on the European stage, the, the Bayern Munich, the Madrid, the Juventus just, just don't seem possible. And, and I think that's a, a painful pill to swallow for traditional football fans who almost like to see things done the organic way. Uh, clubs coming through, so young players coming through good recruitment, spending what you bring in as a club, as opposed to having a billion dollar owner who can just write any check he wants, as we've seen in football now. And, um, Again, looking at the Newcastle fans and the way in which they reacted to the takeover not happening, it's almost as though someone in their family died. They, they feel now that. Um, and what's funny about this, that, that story as well was um, I remember watching uh, a channel, a Newcastle fan channel, and they were like, oh, we could be taken over by um, an, an American, but he's only worth $1 billion. So I mean, that's just not enough for them anymore. <laughs> He's only worth one billion. It's almost like you know they were so fit on Miss Saudis being worth four five hundred billion that a billionaire taking over isn't enough. So my fault for the day is um, take over or bust with the subplots, are, and I hope that's not true.
3: Okay, Migs,
0: what would you like to get off your chest? <laughs> uh, I would take Addy's point even further. It's not so much even billionaires. It's basically that to compete in football now. You have to have a financial potential. I think. What the, I think the entry level of competition now at about at a revenue of about four hundred million. Going by all the latest, like stuff like the Del- Deloitte the Rich List, or, um, Forbes, any measure you want to, we want to take. Um, and this is the depressing, inevitable consequence of football's utter embrace of hyper-capitalism more so than any other industry basically you can think of, even international banking almost, it's because, it's because of how open the, the, the football market is. And it's led to this situation where I think there is, and I think this is underappreciated, there is a crisis in football now that the games, I mean, the, the great glory of the game over the past 150 years has been its pure unpredictability. And it caught the balance right between just low scoring enough so that the better team, so that good work was usually rewarded and the better team won, but also that there was always this massive capacity for surprises and that has been completely eroded now and you can see that with the results of this weekend and the last week where Juventus are on their ninth title in a row, Bayern Munich are on their eighth title in a row, PSG have done their fourth domestic treble in six years where previously there'd never been a domestic treble in France at all, the champions of England for the past four years have got over 90 points um, and there's basically about a group of about 10 to 11 super clubs that are just completely distorting football and creating this financial ladder where there's so many gaps at every step that it is beginning to erode what football is. And, and if you think, like, so, I mean, three of, three of Europe's major leagues, and, like, this is actually an astonishing thought. when you think about it, three of Europe's major leagues, in terms of their domestic games every week, almost aren't worth watching as regards who will win the title because it's such a foregone conclusion. That is a disgrace, and, and it should bring an absolute crisis point in the game, but it's not.
3: No, I think we're probably going to end up with the Super League at some stage anyway. For me, you know, Bournemouth have a a rich Russian owner but as a small club they were always an anachronism in the Premier League now to be honest there was no great surprise in football circles when they announced Eddie Howe had left by mutual consent that phrase is usually trotted out as a protective piece of PR flannel but in this case it had authenticity it was probably best for all concerned Eddie Howe is a quiet perfectionist like many in his trade. But over the last couple of months in particular, he'd seemed careworn. You know, that fresh face wasn't as fresh as it usually was. It doesn't take much to turn management into an obsession and he shouldn't rush back into a job. This is the time to renew, refresh, re-educate. Now, the resilience he showed in taking over a club that couldn't play its players couldn't play its rent couldn't pay the electricity board that will re-emerge he'll analyze his failure and come back strong good luck to him so thanks to all of you listening for joining us here on the football writers podcast